voice you hear. I'm Juan Yoon, and to my left is my right-hand man, Nevin Ryan. Say hello, Nevin. Hello, humans. So uh, today, as part of uh, the next voice you hear, we're going to be sharing with you bits and pieces of an interview we had late last year with a true Renaissance man. His name is Luigi Ferrara. Luigi is an architect, a poet, an academic, uh, a thought leader. He's the Dean of Design and Information Technology at George Brown College here in Toronto and the director of the Institute Without Boundaries. Uh, He did massive change with Bruce Mao a number of years ago, which was one of his first claims to fame. And with all that under his belt, uh, we think it's a safe bet to say he is a true Renaissance man. And as I've maintained before, uh, I believe that in our industry and advertising, we need to have and we need to engage with Renaissance men and women. Exactly. I think uh, being a George Brown graduate, JBC, what up? Um, <laughs> I can uh, attest to the man's true brilliance. Uh, I've been a part of a couple of charrettes with him, which we'll actually be defining for you today what a charrette is. But he's done some amazing things in the past 10 years for George Brown. Uh, and it's one of the top design and tech schools in the country and in North America. So Cool. So without spoiling too much of it for you guys, Luigi uh, shared with us his idea and his hope for what he calls a wisdom economy and how this relatively new approach to design and creativity can create meaningful and useful uh, outcomes. So let's start with a little clip defining exactly what he means by the wisdom economy. Uh, can you tell us what it what is this thing called the wisdom economy and how does it uh, relate to the kind of work that we do in advertising, branding and communication and design? Well, um, the wisdom economy is, is a term that uh, I developed about four or five years ago. Uh, I've been, do, you know, I work a lot with uh, municipalities doing economic development and Everyone is very uh, much interested in talking about a knowledge economy or an information economy. And uh, over the last, uh, you know, 14, 15 years that we've been running the Institute Without Boundaries, one of the uh, things that I've learned um, through this very unique experience of uh, uh, having a interdisciplinary design strategy program where we have people from different disciplines and backgrounds working together is how much uh, not only does your knowledge increase uh, by working with people who are of diverse uh, uh, capacities and talents and diverse perspectives uh, from around the world of different ages with different disciplines uh, that they have mastered, uh, but I also started to realize that uh, 
when we were confronting the problems that we were confronting for different clients, whether you know it was working with the city of Dublin trying to close uh, the wicked problem of the recession and how to deliver public services uh, with less resources than you had previously, or working with the government of Costa Rica trying to uh, minimize and redistribute the assets of uh, the benefits of global tourism because there was kind of uneven distribution uh, uh, of the benefits in their country. So when you're working on these problems, and uh, you realize that sometimes it's uh, information is not enough, uh, knowledge is not enough, mm-hmm. and you can have all the knowledge uh, in the world, uh, but actually uh, what you're really needing is uh, the wisdom of how to bring people together uh, to act and to make change happen. And so, uh, to me, it start, I started to say, you know, what we what we need more than a knowledge economy is a wisdom economy. And I, uh, it's something that I think, uh, it's something that I think was ingrained in me by my 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 family, my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents were oral; they were not literate. My parents, of course, were literate. But one of the ways that they handed down knowledge was through proverbs, through the sort of short phrases of wisdom that they could pull upon and draw upon when they were confronting life's challenges. And uh, there's always been, even in the traditions I have, obviously I'm of Italian background with a name like Luigi Ferrara, there's always a sense of uh, wisdom tradition that it's, it's not just about the knowledge and the learning, but it's about the insight and fundamental understanding that really makes for a better life and a more prosperous life. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if we are, uh, uh, and you know, if I think about it, we've been you know developing in a, and then since the Enlightenment with you know more and more and more knowledge, but somehow we're not able to overcome many of the problems, uh, uh, the fundamental problems like distribution of wealth, uh, uh, like uh, making sure that everyone is fed, uh, making sure that everyone is clothed and housed. So you know, knowledge isn't. It's it's quite clear that knowledge isn't the only thing that solves these things, that there's got to be something more, and that's something more uh, I'm trying to capture in the term of the wisdom economy. Because So what Luigi is touching on is really profound, and it's what design firms and all businesses, for that matter, need to adopt in order to make sustainable and effective decisions. Well, I think uh, it's interesting. I don't know whether Luigi thought of this consciously or, or or subconsciously, but there's this thing in game theory called prisoner's dilemma, and I'm no expert in, in game theory, but uh, prisoner's dilemma is is a basic tool and principle in, in game theory, which talks about um, the benefits relative benefits of cooperating versus defecting. Mm -hmm. And in the prisoner's dilemma, short term, if you defect, meaning if you screw over your, your colleague or your competitor, you stand to gain statistically, whereas long-term uh, defecting is actually not good for you. Long-term cooperation is actually the best way to go. So if two people, for example, are in a collaboration, uh, it basically says long-term it benefits them to work together. Exactly. And like that's what he's doing with, with the wisdom economy. He's bringing together a collective wisdom for everyone to, to kind of join in and buy in on mm-hmm. to solve these problems that usually take firms, consulting firms or practices um, that are so traditional and usually can't solve the problems that 
they have in front of them. Well, there's a very interesting expression from the MIT Jargon Lab, and it's called um, false creationism. And it's a, de- it's a definition of false creationism. It's, and I'm going to paraphrase, I'm, I'm going to butcher it here, but it basically says false creationism, meaning is the fallacy that a small group of mediocre designers or developers can develop any kind of true innovation in the world of software. Mm-hmm. which of course is ruling the planet, that in fact, the only way um, that consistently you can generate innovation in software is where a very talented designer or group of designers are in, quote, constant interaction with an active user base, unquote. It's a really telling phrase to me, constant interaction with an active user base exactly. is wisdom always economy, always collaborating, always communicating, always influencing and improving as a collective. Yeah, well, including the people that are affected by these advancements or by these inventions and innovations and seeing what they think about it. Like he uses so many different examples and on the long interview that, that we had with him of of uh, people just forgetting certain things. And then like these children that are part of the charrette or part of these practices are remembering things. Oh yeah, we have earthquakes that we have to think about when we're building these buildings, just stuff like that. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Well, I'm involved with a real estate development here in Toronto, a really very innovative, very visionary mixed use uh, development where the old pig slaughterhouses used to be. And this whole site uh, at uh, Two Tecumseh is the name of the the street is um, we're looking to really create something quite new about it. And one of the things that we're we're doing to generate ideas is to do workshops and charrettes with the children who live in the neighborhood. In other words, the residents of the neighborhood, many of whom are middle to lower income. Some of them are artists. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a eclectic bohemian neighborhood. These kids not only had this sense of the history of the neighborhood, but the sense of play and possibility. And so they're starting to, to reveal some really cool ideas of what we could do with that property to make it a little bit of a destination mm-hmm. for people in Toronto, and maybe even kind of a model for sustainable urban communities around the world. Yeah. And to just kind of ground this back into or revert it back to the old Renaissance, Luigi, later on in in your interview with him, uh, he mentions an interesting parallel between this type of process that we're talking about right now and the Renaissance of old with ateliers. Mm -hmm. So in the art art community, like masters like Da Vinci and Raphael, they had their own, their own teams with specialists of like draftsmen and goldsmiths. And they all kind of came together. It's just like the last supper wasn't create or the painting wasn't just created by Da Vinci. He had Mm -hmm. a whole team Mm -hmm. behind him and like that's kind of collaborative and cohesive team is what makes great work. For sure. I, I think, and I could be wrong, you know, when it comes to those great Renaissance masters or today, you know, some of the fashion house, great creative directors, you know, like a, when John Galliano was at Christian Dior, they had teams of ateliers, but the idea very often came from the single man, from the single person. What's new about the new Renaissance to me and about this wisdom economy approach is that the very idea can come, the wisdom can come from somebody who is not the old white guy with a beard, who, you know, can be the children in the neighborhood, could be the receptionist at the front desk, could be the intern working at your advertising agency, et cetera. But if you create models where people can credibly contribute ideas 
and contribute their wisdom, that to me is really the wisdom economy. Yeah, and it's more about the impl- implementation now. It's less about the ideas. Anyone can have an idea. Exactly. Valerie Fox, who's in our next episode, talks about that. And she says that that's anyone, everyone around the world has, has your ideas. Like you're not the only one with the idea. It's how you implement it mm-hmm. and how you create it. So that's really important. So uh, you in your, in your interview with him, uh, you asked him if he was seeing more of this collaborative approach as he travels the world. Uh, let's see what he has to say about that. Uh, it, it's very interesting seeing these tendencies that are kind of renaissance tendencies emerging now in this time do you find that there's more and more that in your world as as you travel the planet i i think that uh yeah it's fundamental and i I think this was at the core of the institute out boundaries when it it was uh first founded was at the core of it is the idea of our problems are so complex and so large that they really can't be solved by the myth of the uh, of uh, the individual, the heroic individual. That really our our problems are such that we actually need highly trained specialists who are able as well to collaborate. And I think that's been maybe one of the weaknesses um, when I contrast, say, North America, uh, North American education and education elsewhere. I mean, we have had a strength of building specialists. And early in my architectural career, one of the challenges that I saw is that we have such a high level of specialists. We have the architect, the engineer, the mechanical engineer, the landscape architect, uh, the um, uh, electrical engineer, etc. They're all interior designer, the industrial designer. They're all specialists and they all have high skills. But they're not taught how to collaborate. They, they aren't, and they're in actually a paradigm of collaboration that I think is based on an industrial model uh, that was really based on the assembly line of mm. sequential specialization. Mm. Right? And I uh, was immediately frustrated working you know, as a young architect on projects where uh, so much was missed because of the lack of uh, integrated communication between the specialists. Mm. So we had we have worked very hard to create talented and skilled specialists, but if they are not aware of a larger context and uh, uh, how they relate with others to do their their work, then they really are flawed. And um, I, I had this in my own education. We 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 had a faculty of architecture and landscape architecture, but we never worked together, the architects and the landscape architects. And then my first project upon graduation was to work on a site plan with a landscape architect. And so how could I have gone through five years of school without collaborating? with the people that I need to collaborate Mm. with to create an environment. In fact, I had been schooled in school that they actually had no legitimate role, that the architect should control it all. Mm -hmm. And I think that was kind of the the flaw of specialization because you live in your own Mm -hmm. universe and don't live in the larger context of the ecosystem that is really at play in the world. It's very interesting because I think what you're saying is that that sequential, that sort of assembly line or relay race model of I'm going to pass the baton to you, the next expert in the journey, it doesn't work today. And we find the same thing in, in advertising and any of the associated, 
industries that that sort of sequential siloed model results in very sort of cookie cutter work or work that is not, uh, how should we say, adapted to the kind of the ecosystem view of reality that, that is emerging today. does a physical layout without information from structure. It goes to the structural engineer. They work on it for two weeks. They're complaining because the architects have not thought through, you know, where the structure should go in a proper way. You know, the column grid should be nine meters, not 10 meters. And and then the engineers send back a structure and the columns are in the voids. And, and, and so everyone is kind of blaming the other. Mm-hmm. And I think the society of specialization as a divided society leads to a society of blame mm. uh, and, uh, and misgiving and misunderstanding. And so what I was dreaming of is, you know, if you can't do everything with one person and then you have to specialize, what are the structures that you need to create that allow people to collaborate mm. together and work together uh, and share information in real time so that then they can deliver the solutions mm. in an effective way and not be as inefficient because we specialized for greater efficiency. But at one point, you reach the maximum amount of efficiency from specialization, mm. and the only improvement is by integrating the specialization. Mm. And I think actually that's been part of the work of the Institute is to imagine how do people want to work together? Mm. Now, I learned this very critically in the late 90s when I was building a broadband network for design whose intention was to create real-time collaboration for consultants who are at a distance. You know, uh, you know, the, you know like uh, the marketing people would need to work with the uh, design people, would need to work with the client all at a, dis- uh, at a distance in a design project. But what I found immediately was that people were not ready. It's almost like the generation lacked the skills Mm. of how you would do things collaboratively. Mm -hmm. They wanted to work on their own and bring back Mm. uh, a solution. And then, uh, you know, damn it if it was missing information from others, Mm. because actually the easiest solutions that you can make are when you eliminate parameters. Uh, uh, Mies van der Rohe was famous for this. He, He made like amazing buildings. But of course, actually, it didn't matter um, if they had proper air quality because, you know, that wasn't part of the problem. <laughs> right. You, you know, right. one of the easiest ways to create solutions is to eliminate the problem mm. in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. And as a specialist, you can do that. But actually, what the world is needing is it's needing people that are willing to accept all of the problems. Like, mm. you know, uh, we can make a great democracy mm. for, you know, uh, uh, a predominantly white society, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not enough because mm. there are people from other cultures and other parts of the world that need to be integrated and need to have the same things we do, right? Yes. So, uh, you know, our specialization has taken us to a point, but we actually need a new way of practicing collaboratively that will take us beyond this, that will bring and spread more democracy to everyone, uh, will create better economy, uh, that will be more productive and actually serve and bring goods and services to more people mm. without actually using up all of the resources of the planet, right? Mm. So, you know, these are the real challenges we're facing yes. and sequential specialization isn't up to it. 
So after listening to that, my question for you, Juan, is are people ready and willing to adopt this type of a collaborative practice? Are humans naturally collaborative? Is that something you believe? Like the reason I'm saying this is because we have the idea of I'm looking out for n- number one, so ingrained in our business culture. So <laughs> what do we I, do about I that? I do. I, th- I think humans are naturally collaborative. I think humans are also naturally selfish. I think we have a huge span of tendencies. We're probably the most complex and elastic of, you know, the, the mammal species, at least on the on this planet. So how do you take the two polarities of our selfishness and our collaborativeness or, yeah. or, or sharing nature? You, you watch young children, for example, and they can be at moments unbelievably selfish, like that's mine. And at other moments, unbelievably selfless and sharing. And they like playing together and they naturally play together. So to me, enlightened self-interest is the way to go. It's the balance of those tendencies. And to me, wisdom economy is a wonderful conceptualization of enlightened self-interest. The sustainable food lab which was created more than a decade ago by the major food corporations of the world, like Nestle and Kraft, was created in order to... What what these food companies realize, and they're very competitive with each other. They're aggressive and very smart and very big. And they realized that in 20 to 30 years, because of unsustainable food production, unsustainable agriculture, they wouldn't have a business. There would be no industry. And therefore, you could say necessity was the mother of collaboration and collaboration is the mother of invention, meaning they created the Sustainable Food Lab as a a collaborative effort with other food corporations and experts in agriculture and food production to create, innovate new ways, more sustainable ways to grow food, to grow and distribute food is in their self-interest to do so, but it's in their long-term self-interest. So I would say enlightened self-interest is the balance of our natural tendencies. Yeah, I just think that that can be totally adopted by like-minded people. But when you come to people who are in underdeveloped countries and who are looking for their next meal, looking to feed their child or just trying to looking to get a leg up on anything, on anyone – how do you how do you preach that? How do you go to these these countries and how do oh, you- but I don't think you need to preach it. I think they have something to teach us. If you look at the behavior particularly of girls and women mm-hmm. in developing countries, in fact the poorer they are, the more likely you're gonna see that the moment they get any food to eat, they share it, they distribute it very quickly. Mm-hmm. The moment they get a new piece of knowledge, they share it, they distribute it. Very, very quickly. Okay. And in other words, I think the wisdom economy or the, the primitive, not the primitive, the, the basis of the wisdom economy is kind of embedded in the human psyche. Yeah. And what you have to do is you have to release it. You have to cultivate give it, it. Oh, cultivate it. You have to give it a way to express itself consistently. Yeah, I agree. Now, Luigi talks about this collaboration process and structure. One of these that he uses at the Institute Without Boundaries is called a charrette. And we mentioned it earlier in this episode. It's an exercise that I, I've actually had the pleasure of, of using and being a part of uh, for Cisco. So let's hear a bit of his explanation of what it is and how it's different from design by committee. There's answers. And can you describe a little bit uh, the term charrette? Some of our listeners might not be familiar with it, but it's a very important concept. And it starts to answer the question, how is this different from designing by committee? What is a charrette? Well, it's beautiful. It, 
the difference between design by committee and a charrette is design by committee almost never works because once again it's adversarial perspectives of people giving their in their self interest and so what happens is you keep taking an idea that's been created by a specialist and you keep chipping away at it uh, by decisions that are made by self-interested parties around in basically in a sequential order. And then in the end, you, you, the, the final concept or design is always looking diminished, right? So it's not really creative collaboration. It's, desi- it's, it's designed by it's, a single designer and then it's picked apart by a committee. I'd call it uh, uh, creative desecration <laughs> because what happens is everyone right. gets to take a shot at the yeah. design, right? Okay. And everyone puts their self-interest into the design. Whereas a charrette is... A charrette is the opposite. It's actually people coming together to design and make something together. Mm. Now, if they're well facilitated, they will actually create things together that they would have never created on their own. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not expressing their opinion about a design. They're actually coming in and joining the process of making a design and giving insight and knowledge into the making of the design. Can you give us a quick example of that? It's a a different intention. Mm -hmm. Can you give us uh, an example of that before uh, we've got a few minutes left, but I'd love to hear one, uh, you know, example of a charrette that helped to really create something or solve a problem in a way that the old model couldn't. Okay. I'll, 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 uh, I'll give you an example from one of our first charrettes. We were called down to Windsor to solve like an incredible problem uh, in their social housing complex in their downtown core in Windsor next to the casino. The, they had uh, an old building that had been a senior citizen's resident that they had converted for use for drug addicts, uh, uh, mentally ill, and developmentally delayed people. So they had put these three vulnerable populations in this one building. And uh, based on their consulting process, the idea was that they would have to tear down this building, build three new buildings, and um, and it was beyond their means because there was no way that this poor social housing agency in a small Ontario town was going to be able to build three new $15 million buildings to house these separate populations. And actually the result might have been not better for them because they just might have been a concentration and ghettoized of different disabilities. So what we did is we went in and worked, actually, we worked with drug addicts, the mentally ill and developmentally delayed people, the social workers that were helping them, the city agencies, the people in the social housing agency themselves. And we worked through the problems that they were having. And I think this is the ultimate key about a wisdom economy. A wisdom economy is an economy that listens, right? Mm. That that really listens to uh, everything, right? Mm -hmm. So we were listening. Like the people were telling themselves, the drug addicts were saying, we are the problem. Mm. You have to isolate us. Uh, The mentally ill and the developmentally delayed were telling us, I like, you know, know, that developmentally delayed person really loves to be with the mentally ill person because the mentally ill person feels good by helping the developmentally delayed person. And there's Mm -hmm. actually a synergy that makes them both better, uh, their lives both better by them helping each other. So Mm -hmm. the solution turned out to not at all be about building three new buildings. It turned out about taking 
taking one population core and removing them, putting supports and collaboration between the mentally ill and the developmentally delayed, and bringing the university and the students from the university in to work with these communities. And, and, and within two or three years, many of the terrible problems that they were experiencing were solved, and the cost of uh, doing it was only in the order of four or five hundred thousand dollars as opposed to forty five million right amazing and people 's lives improved so mm. this is where how you frame your problem, mm-hmm. how you listen to the people like i i 'm sure the traditional technique is to hire consultants never to be involved at all with mm. the communities and never get the communities to help you solve the problem. And right? wouldn't you say, therefore, that uh, two of the most important values or, or tenets in order to do this kind of charrette or creative collaboration or even social collaboration is trust and respect? Because trust and respect is, uh, to me, the kind of underpinnings of what you're talking about, as opposed to we don't trust or respect that the people that are involved that will be living here uh, have any wisdom to share with us. So we're going to turn to consultants and experts. Absolutely. And I think to turn it to back to the point uh, and to the audience of people in marketing, I think that's also a transformation that's happening right now in advertising and marketing. Mm. It's that you're really trying to build trust and respect between your client and the marketplace mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a mentality that existed previously that somehow you could manipulate them. Mm-hmm. In a way. Yes. So I think, you know, influence, uh, these changes uh, are coming and, and, you know, we're, we're talking about a social housing problem, but I actually think, you know, developing a brand relationship is the same principles actually apply. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, uh, like a, a wisdom economy uh, as applied to branding means a level of dialogue and interaction that maybe wasn't there previously. So to just to wrap this up, Luigi, uh, I'm uh, thank you for, in a sense, educating us a little bit about the wisdom economy, because I think it's clear that there are a couple of things we should keep in mind. One is that linear, sequential, expert model is now giving way to a more trusting, participatory, collaborative model from the get-go, less of a, an emphasis on experts and more of a respect on the expertise that everyone brings to the table. Uh, and it sounds to me like also less uh, labeling of, you know, consumers versus experts, producers, you know, or residents, you know, versus leaders. It sounds to me like uh, you are bypassing a lot of those um, labels and, and silos and basically saying everyone has something to contribute. So... Uh, Luigi's version of a charrette is a little bit different from the classic charrette of an architectural firm. Mm -hmm. So architects have been using uh, charrettes to show basic designs or concepts to a community, let's say, and get their input. So you would have a day or or two where you have different models in this sort of open space inside a community and people could walk around and comment and discuss and complain and, you know, (laughs) reject and et cetera. Um, and it's a useful thing to do. What, what Luigi has done is taken it to uh, another level where, you know, the very concepts are, are ideated through this sort of collaborative uh, process. So, yeah. And it just, I, I just think that 
bringing the different people together and I find that everyone has their own wisdom, has their own experiential wisdom. And to reference a, bring it always back to the Renaissance, reference a, a great Renaissance philosopher, a French philosopher, Michel Montaigne. He said we can be knowledgeable with another man's knowledge, but we can't be wise with another man's wisdom. But with this structure that you've set in place, you can have everyone's wisdom. Yes. And use it. And, right? and I think and one of the things it. about your generation uh, in distinction or, or in contrast to, you know, Da Vinci's and Michelangelo's generations is your generation is probably the least hierarchical mm -hmm. of, of any in contemporary Western history. Uh, meaning you're, you're much more horizontal. You treat everybody as an equal. You, you talk to each other, you know, colloquially. And the wisdom economy is very difficult when you're hierarchical. When you're hierarchical and you have, you know, layers, you know, of seniority and, and, and people have to bow to their elders and keep their mouth shut at the appropriate times. You still need that hierarchical structure in you some need, way. You need structure, structure, but you don't need all that hierarchy. No. And too much hierarchy, in fact, a lot of, almost any level of hierarchy to some extent inhibits the expression or the engaging of wisdom. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore I would end the segment by it by saying flatter structures contribute to wisdom. Yeah. So we'll be continuing this discussion, uh, part two of this episode, uh, where we'll be playing bits and pieces of our interview with the incubator guru, Valerie Fox. Uh, so stay tuned and keep your ears open. You've been listening to The Next Voice You Hear with Juan Yoon.